Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome. This is Carl's Roller Coaster Podcast. Hello, dear friends. How are you all? I hope this finds you well, in high spirits, feeling positive, feeling great, doing well on your lives, contributing to a better world for yourself, for your families, for your friends, for the people around you that you care about, for all of us, because after all, we are all one. I am delighted to bring this guest to you today and this very enjoyable, very interesting conversation we had quite a while ago, actually, and it's about time to do another one with this fine gentleman, my friend, Mr. Ollie Smith. Met Ollie a few years ago here in London when he was drumming for a band called Six Hour Sundown, led by Lauren Harris, Steve Harris's daughter, Steve Harris from the mighty British band Iron Maiden. I ended up tour managing them on selected UK dates and attending several other gigs. And it's a shame that that band actually doesn't exist anymore because I really, really dig their music. But that's another story, and we might even get into it during this podcast. Ollie, great friend, good guy, extremely positive, always with a big smile and big hugs to offer to people. Um, I just love the guy. He's a great guy. I wish we could actually, you know, get to see each other more often. Unfortunately, life gets on the way, but nevertheless, he's a legend on my books. He's got a new band. Do check it out. Wicked Stone. Wicked Stone. They've got new material out. They're on Spotify. They're on YouTube. They're out there. It's pretty cool. It's great stuff. I highly, highly recommend it. Had the pleasure to attend his wedding a few years ago and that was a great, great experience. We had all a great time and I'll leave it here now because this is going to take a little while. It's going to be a very good, interesting podcast. And please do keep uh, leaving your comments, sharing the podcast. I really, really appreciate it if you subscribe to it. It does. Okay, here we are. It's been a while since I had the pleasure to talk to you, my friend, Mr. Ollie Smith. How are you, my friend? Welcome to the Roller Coaster. Beautiful. Thanks for having me. I'm all good. I'm all good. Good stuff, man. Gosh, it's been ages since I saw you, brother. When when was the last time? I think you came around uh, Diorama here in at Regent's Place in London, and we went out for a quick drink, wasn't it? That's already like two years ago, I think. Yeah, but then didn't didn't you come to that Camden gig last year? Oh, very true. Yes, exactly. The black is it the black heart? The black Camden? heart. Yeah, the black heart. And you were playing, playing there again, by the way. When? Fourteenth of April. Fourteenth of April. Yeah. Great! It's Monday Save night. Save it in right? the calendar. It's it's a Monday evening, isn't it? No, it's Saturday. Is it a Saturday? <laughs> Let me just check. It's just because I'm gonna be. <laughs> Let me just check. <laughs> Just in case I've got it wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the the reason why I said let me just check it's because I'm going on tour next month. Oh, cool! And I'm coming back to London only on the twenty third of April. 
Yeah, uh, that's, that's, so that's not gonna work. Out, so, and and the reason why I ask is you because you won't be there then. <laughs> I will not be there, unfortunately. <laughs> the reason I asked was because on the seventeenth uh, we are playing London at the Underworld, and oh, okay, for some cool. reason I imagine that the fourteenth was the sixteenth, which is a Monday, and the Monday before the sh the London show we're gonna be in London, so that's a day off. And I was uh, like, wow, that would have been amazing, you know. To be able to like on the day off, you know, squeeze in a gig. <laughs> yeah, man. Mr. Alder Smith, Wicked Stone. Oh, but that's great, man. Where, <laughs> where, where are you guys playing in London? Is it gonna be the Black Hat again? It's the same place, yeah, same venue. Cool, cool. So, 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 what's what's going on with Wicked Stone these days, man? Like, fuck, that album is really well produced, really good. I remember listening to some rough uh, mixes uh, while we were in LA. Uh, yeah, on the way down to Nam. On the way down that. to Nam, exactly. Yeah, that was 2016, if I'm correct. It was, and we just—that was the first mixes we got, actually. So it wasn't even mastered at that point. It was just the very first mixes, so it was like exciting to kind of get them through. And I remember because I was trying to download them on my phone, wasn't I? Mm -hmm. Then trying to connect it to the, the the cars, you know, stereo, and then yeah, oh, finally it's working. You know, yeah. oh, it sounds good. You know, <laughs> it was like quite an exciting moment. But um. <laughs> That was that was the first few songs off the album, but we released the album last year in October. Um, done a few gigs at the back end of the year, and we just kind of we haven't done any gigs this year yet, but they start next week, and then they kind of we've got them booked up throughout the rest of the year. So no no sort of specific tours, but they're just kind of like quite a few gigs lined up, which is cool. That's really cool. That's really cool. Are you guys uh, working in partnership with uh, any any agents at the moment, or are you guys basically self-conducting the business yourselves? Yeah, doing it all ourselves at the moment. We've not really tried to find management or agents, mm -hmm. interestingly. We've sort of just kind of sort of bumbled along a little bit by ourselves, doing stuff to get us up and running. But at some point, we're going to need to do that because there's only so much you can do yourselves, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'm fully aware of that. Um, and, well, but that's really good that you guys are actually working towards getting some gigs together and, and yeah, do some, well... It's always good to play London, but getting out there is, uh, is, is always important as well to get the band, uh, well, somehow in, in the circuit. If there's any rock metal circuit these days, because I am completely unaware. Like London, for example, is just absolutely dreadful. It's just there's nothing happening, absolutely nothing happening. Back in 2013, when... Uh, six hours and down was still going and I had my band Stormborn and all that. We still had Entrapped Fox, Purple Turtle in Camden. Uh, there were quite a few uh, uh, small venues with regular gigs taking place. But nowadays, if I say, right, I want to go and see some rock bands, live rock bands, you know, good rock bands uh, in London, wh wh where do I go? I don't know. There's no place to go. It's a it's, it's, it's big, big shame. I mean, I just... I'm a bit like, um, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, nostalgia walking around Tottenham Court Road area. I saw a picture of the old Astoria Theatre the other day and I was like, wow, you know, mm. back in early, early 2000s, that was a very, very nice part of town, you know, buzzing musicians everywhere. There was still something going. 
nowadays, man, it's so, oh, I feel so, so sad, you know, so, so sad. But It's a real shame because the Astoria was like the hub of that area, wasn't it? Because mm -hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't overly sized, you know, it was, it was a, it was a good size. I mean, you got really good bands playing, mm -hmm. but it had that kind of mid-level band. So there was a frequency of gigs, wasn't there? So mm -hmm. every, every week there'd be a few gigs and generally the kind of new, you know, rock and metal music, there would be someone of, of a really worthy name playing there every week, wouldn't there? You know? Exactly. Um, and it was always a great place. I love that venue and loads of people did, obviously. And obviously it's sad that it's now just, well, I don't even, I've not seen it for a while, but it was just a building site when I was last there. You yeah, know? no, I know. It's, it's just, the, the whole area has changed, you know, uh, in the same way that uh, Camden's changing and, and lots of other areas of London are changing. And I find really, uh, um, it's funny because people do come to, to, to England and to London for, for several different reasons. But uh, one of the reasons that people do come uh, to this country is because of its uh, cultural heritage. And that includes, uh, obviously, music and especially rock and metal. Because all, all of the rock giants, uh, uh, if not all, but like the huge vast majority of them come from England, you know. So... Uh, not preserving those venues is something that really, really, uh, uh, I, I can't, I can't, I can't really understand. You go to Los Angeles, for instance, as we we, we just mentioned that we were there at, uh, 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 going to NAM a couple of years ago. Uh, you still have the venues there, you know. Uh, 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 regardless of how hard it is to maintain those things those days, you still have regular gigs. You still re have uh, uh, regular uh, uh, jams. There's still uh, something going on, you know. If you want to try and do something, there are ways to do it. Whereas here in London, gosh, you you can't even find musicians around to to put a band together. No, but then I remember being in LA, and there would be people that lived there and had lived there for a long time. They would also kind of give the same statement that how things have changed and it's not what it used to be. And it's hard to know whether it's just a case of, you know, when you get a bit older, you have the nostalgia from where you're, you, when you are younger. And it'd be interesting to know what like a 17, 18 year old would feel in London now, whether they would feel that there's something happening <laughs> or not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, it's I don't a good know. Point. Because in LA, I agree, you know, when we were there, it was just nice to, be able to go to the places we went and there would be something happening. But then there would be other times when I was there just a bit before you and obviously after you, where I was going to like this sort of list of venues that I'd kind of researched before. And when you go there, it's like, well, I've been told this place is, is a happening place. And you go in and there's like kind of 25 people in there. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, okay, maybe it is a happening place, but it's not quite... You know when someone says it's it's, it's the pl one of the places to go, mm -hmm. you have a certain image of what that's going to be like. And when you turn up and it's twenty five people, there, you think, yeah. ah, you know, did I come on the wrong night or did I, <laughs> you know, have I did I get the wrong venue? Have I gone around the back and it's at the front? This this really cool part, but <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird one, isn't it? I think the the venues that are still going and obviously the strip, you know, it's got like the whiskey on it, which obviously has great gigs still and. You know, there, there's all that going on in LA, but by, by all accounts, it seems that it has changed a bit there as well. And there's always that sort of kind of um, negative view that rock and metal is sort of dead or something like that, or it's not what it once used to be. But then I kind of get confused by that because it, it feels like there's more bands coming out of that genre than there ever has been. So to say it's dead and, and on its way 
to decline. I, I find that really hard to understand. Yet at the same time, like you're saying, when you go out in London, where are these bands? Where are these gigs? It's just a bit of a, it seems all a bit sort of uh, a mystery, doesn't it? Yes, I agree. I agree with completely. Uh, well, unfortunately, not much that uh, we ourselves can do uh, in regards of that, right? So uh, the only thing we can actually do is to keep uh, pursuing dreams and, and playing music and working uh, towards uh, our, p well, our own uh, personal goals. And I believe that's what you've been doing with Wicked Stone. And uh, you mentioned it to me off air earlier on that you have another couple of bands as well, brother, that you've been fooling around with. Tell me more. Yeah, just a couple of covers bands. To be honest, Thumpscrew, there's a, there's a band called Thumpscrew I play in, which is like a, a metal covers band. Mm -hmm. And um, that started up actually after Six Hour Sundown finished. Mm -hmm. Because that was at the end of 2012, if I remember rightly. And at very beginning, 2013, the guys that were forming this sort of covers band just gave me a call and just said, we need a guitarist. Because I'm a drummer in Wicked Stone, but I also play guitar. So when I when the whole thing with Lauren and Six Hour Sundown came to an end, it kind of you know threw, threw things upside down for me a little bit. And um, I didn't really know what to do and, and what I was going to do next, that kind of thing. So to get offered to play in a covers band was the perfect thing I needed at that time because it wasn't a case of like right we're starting out from the bottom again guys come on it's gonna take on the world because I, I I did get a couple of offers from bands at the time that were sort of setting out on that kind of course and I had to turn them down so I was just like as much as I love your music as much as I would love to do it I'm the wrong guy for the job at the moment because I just I can't think I can't think of anything like that I needed something to keep me gigging to keep me active but at the same time to not actually have to think about too much you know yeah, and yeah. not have that worry about you know what you're going to do next what's your next plan all you have to worry about is learning a few songs going out and having fun and a couple of beers and do a few gigs and that's <laughs> all you need to do yeah. and and actually you know you go and do you know when you're a normal band writing your own stuff yeah you go out and often you're playing gigs for nothing you know mm -hmm. you might you might be lucky to get petrol money but you go and do covers and all of a sudden you would all get 50 pounds each <laughs> I was like, wow, I feel like a millionaire all of a sudden. You know, all these years <laughs> where you're doing, you might be paying, you're paying for nothing. And then you do this easy kind of covers gig and you get fucking money for it. It just seems kind of bizarre. But so so that was what, that's what happened. And that actually started five years ago. So we, we kind of played maybe once every couple of weeks in, in Kent, you know, just different rock and, and metal pubs and bars, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and the other gig, uh, the other band I play is a band called WYSIWYG, <laughs> which, Wizzy which stands for WYSIWYG. <laughs> uh, it stands for what you see is what you get. It's basically, the three of us that play that. We end up doing about three or four gigs a year. That's just how it's gone so far. We do covers, but we do kind of we don't just do metal. We kind of do sort of a bit of a mixture of some classic rock. And then you do like, you know, we do like a rocked up version of an Adele song. And, uh, you know, we kind of got a bit of a mix and match. And, um, oh, nice. That's, that's interesting. Sort of Sounds interesting. Yeah, well, the, the guys I play in the band with are like, um, this, as I said, there's three of us. I play guitar, and then there's Jamie and Simon, and those guys I used to play in my old, old band called Cubic Space Division. And we, obviously, we, we were doing our own stuff, and we were out, you know. Which takes us back to 2003, is that correct? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, 2000, and, well, that's when we released our album. Was that your very first band? Well, I played in bands when I was younger. So, like, when I first started out, when I, I think... Because it's funny, because th this July uh, will be 20 years since my first ever gig that I played. 
Um, wow. And yeah, I know. Come on, no, you know when you sort of. We're getting old, brother. We're getting old. I know. I know. <laughs> it's, it's that sort of time in life where you go, oh yeah, that was ten years, ten years ago, and you go, no, it must have been more than. And you go, no, <gasps> it was twenty years ago. It was twenty fucking years ago. Like, how did that happen? Um, so uh, yeah, when I sort of realised that, I kind of yeah, I kind of felt a bit older. I thought of you know being fifteen and doing my first gig, but at the same time, I kind of felt honoured that I was still 20 years down the line still doing it and all the different people you meet on the way and the adventures you have and I'm still doing it and it's um that that was exciting but that was that was when I first did the, my first band we were called Demon Seed wow <laughs> Demon Seed Demon Seed <laughs> <laughs> which is about sounds as like a, a name as you can ask yeah for, <laughs> I, was, I was going to say that <laughs> <laughs> and uh so I did that for a couple of years in another couple of local bands but then Cubic Space Division formed in 2001 and we were together like five years, but our album came out in two thousand and three. Yeah, you got uh, you got the album released um, via Undergroove Records. Exactly, and they're, they're still going. Actually, I didn't. I think they might have had a little patch where they won't release anything. But I've been seeing some stuff recently that they're uh, they got a couple of bands on their roster again. I think. Is there so, any um, is there any of uh, any of that material uh, available online? Cubic Space Division is yeah. You can get it on. I don't know if you can get it on Apple Music, but you can definitely get it on Spotify. Oh, interesting. Nice. Cool. Yeah, so it's cool because it, it's um, the band. You know, it's difficult because you, you you know we're an underground band, mm-hmm. but like any un- underground band, you get really hardcore fans. You know, it's just because you're not uh, headlining the O2 mm-hmm. doesn't mean that the people out there that really really care about everything you're doing and releasing and all the gigs you're playing. So it was quite like an interesting thing when we split up because you had. A, you know, we did a, our final gig in Ashford in Kent. That was just where we ended. And we had some people come down from, like, Southampton and up north to come and see, because they were like, they loved us so much, you know, to come and... What year was that? What year did... Uh, 2006. Right. Okay. So 2006 we finished. Yeah. And um, that was, again, like another thing where you come out the other side and you're like, wow, you know, what, what do I do now? But it was a bit different for me then, because in 2006 I was, like, 24 years old. So you still... Mm. You're still quite exactly young. what was still going on what energy. was going on uh, I, I want to actually ask you a couple of, of questions before uh, um, I dive into that uh, transition uh, from 2006 to 2006 and 2007 uh, when um, when did you start actually uh, uh, playing music because you, you play guitar you play drums you sing you you write songs and what what was the first instrument you picked up and and at what age did that happen? It happened basically when I was younger. N- none of my family are particularly into music. You know, they, they, they listen to the radio, but they don't have like bands or a certain style of music they love or anything like that. No one else is a musician in my family. So when I was growing up, music wasn't necessarily a, a massive part of it. You know, when you hear interviews, you know, read interviews of people, it's like, oh, my dad was a jazz musician. And then I kind of picked that up and then I, I, I got into rock and metal. Well, I had none of that going on. So when I was growing up, I, I quite I quite liked sport as a sort of like, you know, when I was at primary school, going into secondary school. I wasn't ever very good at it, but I quite liked playing football when I played cricket and I played these different sports through school. You did some running was, as well, didn't you? Yeah, that was later. I never did anything when I was that young, actually. Right. That was more of a, I'm, I'm kind of putting on a bit of weight. I need to kind of get it off. <laughs> that, that was, that <laughs> it's a good a way to lose weight, I must yeah, say. It certainly is, yeah. Um, so that, that came a bit later. But what happened was when I was about... I think I was 12 or 13, I had a problem with my knees. 
And uh, it was it's this weird, bizarre named thing called Osgood Schlatter's disease. Jeez. Uh, yes, try and say that when you've had a couple of beers. So <laughs> <laughs> it was this weird thing, and it sounds really because it's like these weird word names and words put together. You're like, oh my god, that sounds horrendous. Actually, all it was is it was part of your knees that sort of. I don't really know the detail of it, but all I know is that the way the bones form together, I think it's something like that, and it causes a lot of pain. Um, so when you're when you're running, playing football, but also I remember one time when I was young, I just I, I sat down on a chair next to my bed and I hit my knee against my mattress, and I I was in tears with the pain, wow. which is weird because I can't even imagine that now, you know. Um, and and so you go to the doctors, you go to specialists, and basically what they said was to to simply to get past this, you just have to not do any sport. A year, and at that time for me, it was like being told now that I can't play drums for a year or I can't play mm-hmm. guitar for a year. You know, it was horrendous. I was devastated. So my mum said to me, "What would you like to do instead of sport? You know, what would you like to do?" And she and I said, "Play drums." And she said, "You can't play drums in the house." <laughs> and I was like, "I was like, okay, play guitar." And she said, "You can play guitar." I was like, cool. So that's what set me on that path. And the reason why I wanted to do that was because even though none of my family were into music, what had happened a few years previously, when Freddie Mercury died, obviously Queen re-released Bohemian Rhapsody. And I'd, you know, again, being a radio listener, I'd never heard anything like that in my life. You know, as a nine or ten-year-old, whatever I was at the time, I'd never heard anything like it, and it blew my mind because I loved it were so you, much. Were you listening to any, any kind of music prior to it yourself, like any, anything in particular? Nothing in particular, just just what was ever on the, you know, whatever was on the radio, you know, just, and again, not even that much of it, but at that time, it was probably like the Madonnas of the world, you know, they, they were like the big players in the radio at yeah. that time, you know what I mean, but it was always like commercial, local radio, so it wasn't even, you, you wouldn't even hear a Bohemian Rhapsody just played casually, because mm-hmm. Bohemian Rhapsody had been out for 20 years at that point anyway, you know, mm-hmm. so it was no, not on the A playlist of any radio station at that time, yeah. so when, when they... Re-released that, I blew my mind. And at the time, yeah, my mum—I I lived with my mum—and um, when I finished school in the evenings, I used to go to a childminder just for a couple of hours until my mum finished work, so she could pick me up, and then we went home. And I remember saying to my childminder Sue, uh, "I said oh, I love this song that I've heard," and she's like, "Oh, Queen, yeah, I've got that on tape." And I was like, "You've got it? Yeah, how have you got that?" <laughs> you know, I was so, so young and innocent. I was just like, "How do you?" I just thought they played things on the radio. I didn't know really. You've got a Queen tape, cassette tape? And she was like, yeah. So I, so I recorded it, and it's Queen's Greatest Hits 1, and then that was really the life-changing thing because I loved the whole album. And then sort of still didn't kind of, kind of get fully into music at that point, but it was a couple, a couple of months later, then the um, Freddie Mercury tribute concert happened, and Metallica opened the, the show, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, that like, blew my mind, you know? Yeah. Um, and it took a couple of years again from that point to sort of like bump into a friend from, from my primary school who had then obviously started, be, you know, at that point, 12 or 13, getting into this kind of metal music. He goes, I've got loads of Metallica tapes. And I was like, oh, so he recorded them all. And then that, that was kind of where it all starts from. So it was, it was around then. Then the problem with my knees. And then I started playing guitar and basically I wanted to play like James Hetfield on guitar and that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's And then really it evolved cool. from there. Yeah, so that's how it, so it works out. So it's like that kind of classic you know, without sort of sounding too dramatic, that tragedy of, that, you know, my, my heartbreak of not being able to play so sport in many, for you. In, what's in, in do, many you ways, know? your mum was really uh, uh, supportive in, in regards of, of music because she, she was, well, number one, she, she was very supportive to you, asking what would you like to do instead of 
of playing sports and then you you, you chose to a guitar and uh, I presume it was uh, an acoustic guitar that she she gave it to you or was it actually an electric guitar? No, well, it was interesting because at the time she worked with a guy called Keith and he played electric guitar and he had a spare, I think it was, I think it was called a Marlin Sidewinder was the guitar mm. and um, he was just like, obviously said to my mum, well, I don't think she ever told me this but I can imagine a conversation with something like, don't spend any money because if he goes off the idea in a couple of months, it will just be a waste. Yeah. So just just let him borrow that guitar, just see how he gets on. But it, but it, I, I was like addicted to it. So it was maybe a half a year later for my birthday. My birthday's in November, so my mum kind of combined the birthday and Christmas present and bought me an Epiphone SG, and I still have that guitar. I still use it more than any other guitar to this day. Actually. Do you? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, so it's over 20 years old and it's made, it's had a couple of adapters. I've got different pickups in there, but for the most part, it's, it's yeah, it's just that's that, so that very nice. first guitar, you know. That's really, really cool. So you always had a good, actually, relationship with, with, with your parents, your mum in particular. Absolutely, yeah, my mum and dad. You know, my mum and dad divorced when I was young, but um, they've both been supportive for me of like, the music thing in, in different ways, really. Mm. Um, my mum, like you were just saying, it was was there at the beginning. Yeah. To because uh, because I, I live with my mum, I used to visit my dad, so um, all my stuff was ultimately at my mum's house, you know. Mm. Um, and she used to she then encouraged me. I had like guitar lessons, and she used to kind of take me there, pick me up every time, and pay for the lessons, that kind of thing. Ah, oh, that's and, so uh, nice, really. Yeah. Really so cool. the support was there absolutely from from her from the beginning. She sounds know, like a great great mum. She does. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because obviously, like I say, she's none of them are musicians or anything, you know, and. Mm. Um, but it was they could see obviously the you know she could see the 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 passion in me and for music so she kind of supported that which is which I'm really grateful for obviously you know absolutely absolutely well now I now I can see where where all the the amazingness of Ollie Smith must come from <laughs> great parenting <laughs> yeah that's it man yeah. <laughs> uh, brother so uh, well Ben then back to 2006 uh, cubic space division. Uh, parting ways and then in 2007 how did you how did you first uh, get the job how did you become backline tech for the Lauren Harris band uh, basically I think what happened after the Cubic Space Division split up I kind of I think actually at the time I just kind of thought right I'm just going to give myself a few months from music you know just uh, at the time I was also I was putting a bit of weight and, and that was when I started getting into boxing and um that kind of thing, because I thought I just I just need to do a sport. I want to lose weight. I've been told boxing training is very good, so I thought I'd just dabble in that. You know, I never competed in boxing or anything like that, but I just went for the training. So I kind of, you know, those kind of evenings where you know, once in a time I was going to band practices, rehearsals, that kind of thing. I just used that time almost to kind of physically shape up. You know, just give myself a few months. Yeah. Later on that year or early the following year, a good friend of mine, Simon Sales, was like um, wanting to start up a band, and I'd always loved drums even though I, I didn't really play what play drums or have a drum kit or anything um but i'd always at rehearsals with my old bands you know when you have a break i used to not have a break i used to come in and say to the drummer i just have a go on your kit because <laughs> <You laughs> i used to love playing drums you know it was always like a fascination i had but the reason why my mum couldn't said you know the time i couldn't have a drum kit was when i was younger was obviously for the volume reasons and the space in the house you know we didn't have a tiny house but we didn't have a massive house and you know, we, we, set, we were a part of a housing estate, so you can't really, you know, well, you, oh, you sure. can upset a lot of people by having drums, you know. Absolutely. So um, so that pushed off the drum bit, but my, my obsession with it was still there. So when he said he was, like, looking to start up a band, you know, I was like, well, I'll, 
you know, we're finding a rehearsal room that's got a kit, and you know, I just try and have a blag on the drums, you know. So I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to be very good at it, but let's just give it a try. And actually, at that time, 2006 to 7, it developed quite nicely, and my skills of drumming kind of came together because I was actually practicing regularly, not just, <laughs> you know, uh, the drummer from my band's drum kit for 20 minutes in the middle of a band practice. <laughs> so that kind of evolved, um, and we were doing some gigs, and I was, you know, now, now all of a sudden I've become a drummer. So 2006 and 7, I was working at just a daytime job, insurance company job. Um, and I, you know, lovely people I work with, but I could not stand the job. I was bored out of my mind every day, um, dreaming of, you know, bigger and better things in the musical world. And a good friend of mine, Sharon Richardson, um, and her husband and mine are good friends, and they run a music, um, well, booking agents. Uh, they work for a bigger booking agent now. Um, but they had their own company, music management, booking agents. And she called me up and said, Ollie, could you be a guitar and drum tech? And I was like, right now, I'll be anything you want me to be. <laughs> it means getting out of this fucking job, you know. <laughs> she didn't say who it was for. She just said, I, you know, could you be a, a guitar and drum tech? And uh, I said, yeah. She said, okay, well, look, uh, give me a call back at lunchtime. Because it was like something like half nine in the morning, you know, another day starts and you're walking through the office thinking, what the fuck am I doing in my life, you know. Yeah. And, um, so I spoke to her at lunchtime, and she said who it was for, and I was like, wow. I was like, well, obviously I can do it. She said, you know, it's for Lauren Harris, and it's going to be on the Maiden tour next year, the plane tour. I was like, wow. Mm-hmm. I'll do whatever it takes to do, you know, I will do whatever it takes to do that job, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, first thing said, I had to learn how to be a guitar and drum tech, because I'd never done anything like that. Obviously, when you play those instruments, you have sort of some knowledge on how to repair certain bits, but... I never had over, overly extensive knowledge on that at all, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, drums are a fraction easier to, to fix up than s- sort of guitar amps, you know, and the, the wiring of a guitar amp or, or that kind of thing. But um, I've got a friend of mine that was doing some teching at the time, so I thought, you know, I got in touch with him and got some heads-up advice of, you know, what I needed to do. But the whole premise was is that I couldn't just go and do the Maiden tour. It was There was a couple of tours Lauren was doing before. So in November 2007, uh, she did her own tour, like for a week, that was UK pubs and clubs, and it culminated in Hard Rock Hell. Um, mm. uh, and so I did that. That seemed to go all right. And then a couple of weeks later, Lauren supported Thunder. Um, and you and, and you were playing guitar in the band. At this no, point. no, no, no. I was just Tekken. Right, right. I was just Tekken. I was I was no part of the musical side of it. Okay. So that all happened. Then then. It went well enough. There was a few little teething problems. A couple of guys in the band were sort of a bit worried about my confidence and skill levels. But in the end, I think Sharon kind of flew the flag for me. And I think Steve Harris was kind of more than happy for me to be a, yes, okay, I might not be the most experienced guy in the world, but I'll learn as the job goes on kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we went on the I Maiden tour, you know, the plane tour. And I was the tech, backline tech for Lauren Harris band on that, which obviously goes without saying that was incredible. So you 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 start you did basically uh, that somewhere back in time tour, which started back in two thousand and eight with the whole Iron Maiden playing and everything. You started that tour from the very beginning. Absolutely, the very start. So the first stop, if my memory serves me correctly, was India, in Mumbai, and um, yeah, it was it was incredible because you know as much as I, um, you know, had, had gone to a few different holiday destinations in my life I'd never really traveled around that much so all of a sudden to land in India you're like wow <laughs> you know this is mm-hmm. incredible and then the next stop was Australia and 
but we were there from the very start. So because Ma uh, Maiden have done a few plane tours at this stage, but back then that was their very first tour that they got on their own plane, where Bruce was sort of piloting for some of the some of the trips. Um, before that, they obviously they'd flown in planes to gigs, but they'd never had the one plane where all their equipment and all their crew and band members were all on the same same plane. So we were there for that very first plane tour. So it was absolutely mind blowing to and be what, there. And anyway. what what was um what what were the days like? I mean, did you have uh, you obviously had uh, itineraries and and stuff, but um was was it every day uh, different from the other or did you guys kind of like okay we landed we go to the hotel we check in we have a couple of hours to rest and then uh we go to the venue and start setting up and once you are at the venue you stayed at the venue you 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 lunched and dinner at the venue what what, what was it like every every day is kind of a bit different because although it's um there was a quite a few dates on the tour there was also you know there's travel days then there's day off then there's gig day there's other times there's a travel day and there's a gig day the following day so there's there's some cities you land in and you kind of you get to the hotel late in the day you might have some dinner you wake up next day you're taken to the venue you know and then you're at the gig all day the following morning you might fly out so you don't really see the place that much and there's other places you're there for a few days and you really get to kind of do some sightseeing but in terms of like a normal scenario you get picked up from the hotel driven to the hotel some countries you'd have a sort of special lenience in the sense that you still have to be a there'd be a, still be a security process but you might just get taken onto the runway straight onto the plane um mm. and then take off there's other countries where you're kind of you go through the airport you're doing the same thing as everyone else has to do um flights varied for lengths you know it depends obviously where how far you're traveling sometimes they're going to be like you know 10 11 12 hour flights sometimes they're an hour uh, then you kind of get there, you get taken to the hotel, depends on what time you get there. You know, me and um, Lauren and Kerry um, would often hang out, that's Kerry's Lauren's sister, uh, and uh, Justin, who's uh, Yannick's guitar tech, because we're all very similar age groups, so we would often kind of go out exploring in the city and doing bits and pieces. And then you might go and grab some dinner, do a bit more exploring, and then next day's gig day. So you kind of get there, everyone gets there at different points. If you're the Iron Maiden uh, crew guys, in the sense that you're setting up the stage, um, that they get their very first thing, as you can imagine. The backline techs get there a few hours later. Um, sound check might happen mid late afternoon, that kind of thing. But yeah, there's always catering on site, and you get lunches and dinners. But it was always great because obviously once made, um, Lauren finished, and I'd done my job, packed everything up, and I get to see Maiden every night, you know. Which yeah. um, <laughs> I think obviously they're a great band, you know. But you know, because you kind of almost get a bit hardened to it because you see it every night. But you know, when I was younger, growing up, Maiden were, you know, yeah. I was a massive fan of them, you know. So. Way better than being cool. stuck in the in the office of that insurance company, I bet. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it was. Uh, I certainly didn't look back. That's for sure. And um, in terms of uh, basically lobby calls, hotel calls, and stuff like that, does people just basically follow uh, what's on the itinerary, or and everybody like uh, respects that? How how does that work? Do you have to? You know, you know that two p.m. you kind of have to be in the in, in the in the hotel hall, so there'll be a van to take you to the venue and and stuff like that. So it's kind of like uh, after I imagine that after a few shows, things just work uh, just automatically, basically. Even the setting up of the stage, the setting up of the drum kit, changing drum drum skins, and and and, and all that business. Yeah, the the bus call thing is like it's really it's really. Uh 
paid notice to because if the bus calls at nine in the morning, you, you've got to be there at nine in the morning. It's like there's no, it's not like that kind of oh man, you know, we we'll all turn up thirty minutes late, forty minutes late. It's not like that. It works like a much tighter machine. There's, I suppose it's like that unspoken culture that you don't let the side down. Do you yeah. know what I mean? As much as it's kind of like, you know, people might have had a few beers the night before or whatever. You, you still got to deliver the goods the next day. Yeah. And um, I remember one time it was in uh, Tokyo. There was a free bar to, fin- to celebrate finishing the end of the tour. And fuck, man, there was um, it was when I was teching as well. And I remember Tommy, uh, Lawrence drummer at the time. I think he organised, I don't know if he, he called us up, because he, he'd gone home earlier, he didn't want to stay out and, and kind of until the early hours, so he'd had a few beers and kind of called it quits at, at a sensible time, you know, mm. he knew the rest of us were going to get messy, and I remember him calling up in the morning, and I was so drunk that when I answered the phone, he must have said it, he went, hey brother, just want to make sure you're up, and I was like, yeah, yeah, cool, <laughs> put, the phone, put, put the phone straight down on him, then, then the uh, alarm call comes from the hotel reception, and I was like, yeah, put the phone straight down, went to sleep. And literally, me and I was sharing a room with Greg, the tour manager. Fuck, we woke up. It was like we had one minute to be downstairs for the bus call. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But all I can say is you get on the bus, and um, no one no one had to go at you, but you know you're not very popular in that moment. Yeah. And uh, you're kind of uh, the butt of a few snide remarks from the rest of the Maiden crew, and uh, you're, you're kind of let to know indirectly that, that wasn't a very sensible thing to do. Right. <laughs> so, so from then on, when there's a free bar, you just make sure you set three or four alarms at the, the other side of the room, so you have to get out of bed and have to get up and get on with it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so it does work like a machine, and and that's why it's so effective. And the whole Maiden show works as a, as a machine, doesn't it? You, when you go and watch them play, it's it's really slick production, isn't it? Everything happens at the right moment at the right time, and the the day leading up to it is no different, really. Everyone obviously is at the top of their game in terms of the drum tech, you know, uh, the guitar techs, all of them, you know, they're, they're all, they're not just kind of like, they're not there working it out like I was as a tech, you know, that they're, they're, they've worked it all out already, they're the top of the game and they've got a good skill set. Yeah. Does, do they, do they uh, like, uh, do the crew uh, have any sort of rules, for example, say, um, I don't know, um, during, during working hours, uh, people don't drink and don't smoke, for example. Uh, or is is people allowed to say, okay, you finish setting up uh, setting up the whole gear, the show is ready to go. Okay, I'm gonna have a beer now. Just, I mean, when I say have a beer, it's like literally have a beer, not like sit down and knock down a few beers and then go do the show. Does do, 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 do they have any kind of rules like that, or people are simply just professionals and they just uh, leave that for literally end of the day when the whole job is done? I don't know about that, actually. I wasn't really ever conscious of the fact that there may have been a rule, but I think it was, it was the latter of what you said, that people are they're professional and they wouldn't do that. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? They, I'm not saying they wouldn't have had a beer with their dinner. I wasn't really, I didn't really, uh, you know, it's a few years ago now, I, I don't really notice. Yeah. But the thing is, even when things are set up, that's, that's only kind of caught with the job. Because when they're on stage, the band, you know, that's really the bigger part of the job because that's when you've got to be at your sharpest mm-hmm. to make sure that if anything's going wrong, that you fix it really quick and if you've had a couple of beers you're not going to be quite as responsive <laughs> yeah yeah no so. of course absolutely absolutely uh ollie and then well so that was a ama- so that was two 2008 and 2009 so that was like a couple of years of your life basically uh assorted but then the tour eventually came to an end and then you, you did you go back to folkestone what what, th- what did you have anything lined up 
Did they uh, mention anything about the upcoming 2010 tour? Uh, how, how did that uh, transition happen? Well, at the, end of, at the end of 2008, Tommy, their drummer, was kind of, um, you know, like, you know, he's a few years older than the rest of the band. And I think initially when he was involved with Lawrence stuff, you know, the first album, he hadn't intended to go and be part of the live band. He'd sort of been there as almost like a mentor to kind of take her on tour, um, get her up and running. So later on, he was deciding he wasn't going to be the drummer for the following year's tour, so 2009, you know. So they... Well, Lauren asked if I'd be interested in playing in the band. I'd already specified that I would, you know, if you ever need a drummer, let me, you know, if you run auditions, let me know, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it was like, you know, I, I've been playing drums for a couple of years, you know. As I say, I, I've been playing drums for many years, but only really taking it seriously those couple of years, you know. So at that point, I was really up to my skill game, really, you know, I wasn't playing guitar at all at that point, other than maybe when I was setting up riffs with guitar and that kind of thing, you might have a little play, you know. But the, when I was at home, drumming was my focus. So... When it got to the end of 2008, that's when I auditioned for Lauren. I got the job. So on the 2009 plane tour, I was the drummer in that. Band, oh, you know? I so, see. Right. So that's that's when I was I was doing that. So the, the next year's plane tour, Lauren supported Maiden the same way she had the year before, but I was now drumming. So then I'm then I'm doing obviously those incredible shows, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, from that point, yeah, I came back. But then we had like another tour with Lauren lined up with Motley Crue in the summer of 2009. But we'd also, at the end of the 2009 Maiden Plane Tour, we had gone in the studio with Kevin Shirley and recorded an album. So whilst we were on tour with Maiden... Is that what, one you know, recorded at the Compass Point in NASA? Yeah, exactly, Compass Point. So we'd just started the... the what had happened was, when I joined the band, they, Richie had started writing a couple of songs for the next Lauren album. And then when I joined the band, then I think we... We did like, you know, we started writing a couple more songs. Maybe at that point we might have had three or four songs, you know. And then we got into January. Before the next Maiden tour, we did like a small week's tour in, um, we did a little bit in the UK, actually. That was my first gig was at the Camden Underworld, actually, with Lauren. You know, being being her drummer. Mm -hmm. So that was your first gig. So, but, but, sorry, but uh, when, when Tommy left the band, so he didn't do the shows uh, in 2009, did you? No. So, so did you play those shows in, in, during the Maiden uh, uh, Summer Back in Time tour in two thousand and nine? Yes, I did. Yeah. Ah, right. So basically, you well, you, your f- very first gig with Lauren was already was was supporting Maiden, basically. The very first one was was just at the end of two thousand eight because the the Maiden tour in two thousand eight had finished. Oh, in, I see. Right. In Europe, at, um, where was it? I can't remember now. Russia. It was Moscow. Um, and that was like August time. So we came back from that tour, and I think that was, yeah, 20-something of August. And then I remember coming back, and a couple of days later, I went to Leeds and Reading Festival to watch Metallica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then September time, I'm kind of like, well, just I'm home now. It's been a busy year, so I'm just going to chill out at home and catch up with friends and family, that kind of thing. Then I must have done the audition probably October time for Lauren. The first gig, if I remember right, it was at the end of, I want to say November, I think. And we did a few gigs in the UK. But all it was, it was just Lauren's own tour. There was no, we, we weren't supporting anyone. It was just Lauren just doing a few of her own UK shows. Mm-hmm. So we did um, London and Leeds and Glasgow and there was somewhere else. I can't think what it was now. But, and um, so I was now Lauren's drummer. 
And then in January, we went to Scandinavia, and we did like three or four shows in Scandinavia, just by ourselves again, headlining. <coughs> and then we got onto the next Maiden tour. And well, after we'd been on the Maiden tour for maybe a couple of weeks, I think we were in New Zealand, and Steve came to us and said, right, I've got you booked in for the end of this tour. Compass Point Studio with Kevin Shirley for, for 10 or 11 days. But wow. First things first, we haven't even got an album to record. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've got like three, three, three new songs or four new songs, you know. Mm-hmm. And we said that, but obviously Steve is a kind of very strong-headed person and doesn't see things like that as an obstacle. He just sees like that as a challenge, you know. Mm-hmm. So we were like, fuck, we've got like eight weeks to write a whole album, basically. <laughs> you know, <laughs> gathering together. The different ideas Richie had had and Lauren had had, and, and but we got it. You know what? We got it together. You know, we, we had to organise a couple of rehearsal studios in Santiago and uh, in Chile and somewhere else in Brazil, I think. Can't remember where that was, but um, yeah, we did a couple of like day, like all day sessions in the in the rehearsal studio. But then when we finished the Maiden tour, we went straight to Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas and uh, recorded an album with Kevin Shirley. We then came back for like another five six weeks. Had the Motley Crew tour. Uh, by that point, the mixes of the album had come through, and Steve felt there was a couple of songs that weren't quite strong as the rest of it. Uh, and we'd then written a couple of new songs, and he was like, "Right, what we do is we'll get you in the studio at the end of the Motley Crew tour to finish the album." So we went into a studio called Black Rock Studios in Santorini, uh, which was a new studio at that point. The, the only people that had recorded there was Joe Bonamassa. Oh wow! Uh, he, he he was the first band to record there, and that's the, his album Black Rock because it was named after. I think it's Santorini's got a nickname, Black Rock, and it was called Black Rock Studio. So his album was called Black Rock, you know. Mm-hmm. So we we literally got there the day that he was literally finishing. So we had a barbecue with him and the rest of his band that night. They went home the next day, and then that's when we jumped in the studio to do the next two songs that were going to be the end of Lauren's new album, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was like July, I think, 2009. And um, unfortunately, from that point, it kind of went a little bit downhill <laughs> with the band because um, there was a bit of confusion about who was going to manage and Steve was sort of overseeing certain things, but Lauren wanted to kind of do... Um, I think there was the, the family thing was making her making things a bit difficult. So she was thinking, right, I need to do this a bit more by myself. And it then meant that we sort of then tried to find managers, they didn't work out, and that kind of got us through a year and a half of not really us getting anywhere or doing anything. You know, and uh, so that the album, album was just sitting there in the can, that, just doing nothing, you know. That album basically is the, is it, is it, it's the six hour sundown album that uh, never, never was released, right? Well, not really, because that album was recorded under that situation, the Lauren Harris band. Mm-hmm with Kevin Shirley. Then, later on, when me, Lauren and Richie, Randy had sort of left the band because he was, I think, getting a bit disillusioned with how things were going management-wise and nothing was really happening and, and that kind of thing. I think he was feeling the frustration of that. So he, and the rest of us, by the way, you know, I lived in Kent and Richie was staying at Lauren's at the time um, in Essex. So we, we are somewhat, you know, I, I'm one and a half hours away, but Randy lived in New York. He still does live in New York. So, it's a bit of a difficult scenario when you're in a band, the three of you live an hour and a half away from each other, and then the other guy lives in the other, you know, halfway around the world. Mm-hmm. So he left the band, and then it was kind of like the new managers were kind of then saying, you know, where do you want to go with this band? What do you want to do? And then they were starting to critique 
the, the album we'd recorded already and, and, and not kind of pick holes in it to such a massive degree that we got to the point where we were just like, well, let's try and remix it then. And then that didn't work. That's sort of almost made it worse. So this lovely album that you recorded in this famous studio with this amazing producer, we'd been sort of dissecting it, tearing it apart to the point that actually picking holes in so much it didn't have the same look about it and feel about it anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it got to the point where we were just like, well, we just have to fucking re-record this thing. So then we re-recorded it at Steve's studio. Uh, Tony Newton recorded it. And um, we ultimately re-recorded the whole album with, again, two new songs, actually, that we'd written that we thought were kind of more fitting to where we were at musically at that point. And that album didn't fucking come out either. So we, we literally, here we are in 2018 talking with two albums sitting there that are ultimately mixed and mastered, finished, and, and none of them are released. Like... No. Uh, and it's the most frustrating thing because the Kevin Shirley recording... Uh, Compass Point sounds great. It's a different kind of sound that we went on to record with Tony Newton. It was mixed by a guy called John Mitchell that had a much more modern sound to it. They both sound amazing for different reasons. You know, there's no better or worse one. But as I said, the management at the time were kind of saying, you know, where are you going with this? What are you doing? And what sort of sound are you hoping to produce? And we were trying to sort of modernize ourselves a little bit. We didn't want to be stuck in the classic rock genre unnecessarily, you know. Um, but unfortunately, we just we chased our tails too many times, and th- and then Richie got the job in Judas Priest, mm. and uh, so Randy had gone, Richie had now gone, and it left me and Lauren. So then we built two built albums a band. in the oven. Two, yeah, two albums sort of in the can, un unreleased, and me and Lauren left. You know, half the band left. Um, big part of the songwriting was Richie. He'd now gone. You know, so. So that became a little bit of a sort of like challenge of where do we go now? But then we got a band together and then we called it Six Hour Sundown. And that's when we had like three other new guys come in, uh, James, Tom and Mitch. The, the, as you know, that's where I met you, wasn't it? That's um, right. Yes. You know, at that time. And then and then we released a couple of singles from the second version of the album, ultimately, that we'd recorded with Tony Newton, um, building up to releasing an album. But again... It just kind of got the band got a little bit messy, and um, before you know it, 2012, I got a phone call. I remember I really clearly, I was in France with my wife, and we were staying at our friend, uh, my friend, my best bud Jamie, uh, his parents, um, and I got a phone call from Lauren or a text from Lauren saying, "I know you're away, but um, can you, you know, can you give me a call when you when you've got a moment, sort of thing?" So I called her, and uh, she was like, "Ah." Oh, I just don't want to do the band anymore. <laughs> and I was like, because we'd gone through the ringer a little bit over the last 18 months with it, you know, from the from the massive high of like, you know, um, doing the tours with Maiden. And I think by me joining the band, and it had given him a new lease. And, and obviously Tommy's a great drummer and he's a great guy and he was always great to have him about. And it was strange for him not to be about. But I think because he was always that bit older and wasn't necessarily always going to be there because he would always claim to he wasn't going to be on the tour, or wouldn't be touring with them forever. All of a sudden, I was there, I was more their age, and it was like, now, okay, now the band's finalised, you know, this is this is now Lauren's band going forward. Mm-hmm. But then it had kind of, like, fallen apart a little bit, and then, as I say, when it came to, like, trying to go around the, the, the uh, loop again, and then trying, like, now we've, we've really got to get this album out. And then you sort of get a bit disgruntled. It's hard to try and... It's hard being Lauren, because... 
she's a great singer, she's a great person, but her dad is Steve Harris, and Steve Harris, as we all know, is like the main man of Iron Maiden, and Iron Maiden fans are like the most passionate fans in the world. But one thing they don't all have is that sort of feeling of like, that they're, they're really supportive of Maiden, but they don't necessarily share the same support for the offspring of members of Iron Maiden, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So they're a little bit more cynical when they get you know, there were some places they were pissed, you know, people were a bit pissed off that, you know, the whole nepotism thing that they, you know, the only reason why Lauren supported Iron Maiden is because of Steve. And it's like, well, you know what, of course it is. But if I was Steve Harris and I had a daughter that could sing her ass off like Lauren, I, I would take her out on tour with me as well, you know? Absolutely. Um, so, um, but anyway, it kind of, then it becomes very difficult because then you're always seen as like, you know, Lauren Harris, you know, Steve's daughter. It's a bit like, I suppose, the Kelly Osbourne thing, you know, because she went through a patch of doing the whole music thing, didn't she? And mm-hmm. you're always, you're not just Kelly Osbourne, you're always Ozzy's daughter. And you're not you're not just Lauren Harris, you're Steve's daughter, you know? Yeah. So anyway, we kind of went through the ring and we did some great gigs as well, you know, played some cool festivals, as you know, because you were there for a couple of them. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, when it got to that, that sort of time, 2012, August 2012, Lauren, like, kind of, was burnt out from it, I think, from from this sort of inertia of not moving forward with anything happening. You know, another year goes past. You got to think at that point, 2012, we still didn't have an album out. August 2012, we finished an album. July 2009, you know, three years before, and you get to a point where it's just like this is just fucking nuts, you know. Mm-hmm. That's and um, there's even and a that, video clip that was uh, that was never released, right? That video, period, a video yeah. from that period. Yeah, there was a song. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because we released the video for Jekyll and Hyde, and then we released right. the uh, video for Shadow of My Past. Yeah, but and then we had recorded one. a video, mm-hmm. uh, Rain on Me. Exactly. But yeah, that was finished, but that never, that never came out either. You know, it's a real shame. It's just a shame because there's great music there, and and man, it's, at this point, it, it is great music. I, I genuinely like, I always, always love the music. I love the band. I think there was such a great vibe. There was such a camara- camar- camaraderie <laughs> in the band. Yeah. And and the music was great. And everyone is like devoted to it. The performance was great. Lauren was singing really, really well. Um, and with an album, you know, ready to go. I mean, it's really like, uh, well, obviously... From uh, my perspective, as as a friend and someone that was uh, 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 did a few shows with you guys as well, um, it's just like we. I mean, I I, I wish I could have had uh, that album. I wish I had that album to to listen nowadays, you know. And I'm pretty sure that if that was the case, if the album uh, was uh, released, it would be something that it could have been built on you know something could have been built on and i generally think that that should have been the path taken but unfortunately we that that might never happen actually that album those two albums actually which is even more frustrating there's two (laughs) versions of the album you know you can't even make a very uh uh, rare and collectible thing out of it you know you get the uh version one and you get the version two you know um and yeah, I can only imagine how frustrating that period was for you, especially like towards the end when and when you know you got the phone call from Lauren saying that didn't want to carry on with the band, and then all of a sudden uh, those well four years of amazing experiences and absolutely seeing uh, 
uh, uh, yourself as uh, fulfilling your wildest dreams and just becoming uh, uh, a professional musician and, and, and a touring musician and then all of a sudden, boom, you kind of have to go back to what people say, the reality. How 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 was that pe- that period for you? I mean, uh, can you try and describe and and tell us a little bit how how did you go through your emotions and psychologically and how did you deal with everything? Yeah, it wasn't the best time of my life. Um, you probably started seeing some of that happening anyway. Because when you were kind of part of it, it was probably the two. It was earlier 2012, wasn't it? Uh, later 2011. And um, I'll just go back very quickly. You know, like you said about the com- you know camaraderie between us as a band. It was the same with us when we were in the band with Richie and Randy. We got on so great. We used to have so much fun together. It was just like when we were on tour, a bunch of friends just on tour. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. was, you know, you hear different dramas of bands when they're falling down, or this guy's a bit of an arsehole, and he's on a different bus, or he's in a different room, and no one invites him out for dinner, or what have mm-hmm. you, you know? Um, it was literally like we were just, have, we were friends anyway, which, which we weren't, you know, I didn't know any of those guys before, but it was like we could have been friends before, and we just happened to have been given this opportunity, and now we're just going, wow, this is amazing, look at this, this, this cool restaurant, look at this cool country room, look at this cool day we've had you know, snorkeling off some you know, small island in Costa Rica. You know, all this amazing stuff you're doing as friends. And then guess what you're doing tonight? You're playing fucking in front of 50, 60, 70, 80,000 people supporting Iron Maiden, you know. <laughs> it is, it's unbelievable, you know. Um, so then when the whole Maiden tours came to an end, it was a bit like, well, it didn't feel bad because we were doing the, we'd recorded the album, Compass Point, and it was like, right, well, our album is going to be coming out. So, so, Bearing in mind the situation you're in, the fact that there is obviously this, the connection with Steve, all you can think is, when this album comes out, obviously you hope it's going to be the best album of the year and everyone's going to love it. But either way, you know you've got, you're going to, you've got a good, busy 18 months coming up after it. Different support slots, different tours, different adventures and exciting things. So when that, all that started kind of becoming difficult and obviously the album didn't, didn't come out and then we weren't sure what was going on about management and then that... 2010 was just literally spent dissecting everything we'd done before, not doing any gigs in 2010 at all, waiting for something to happen. So the disillusion started a bit then because when I was touring, obviously that's all I did. So when I came back, I didn't do, I wasn't working. I wasn't necessarily a rich man in the slightest, you know, but I just had enough money to kind of get me through to the next tour. When 2010 happened, it got to, you know, I think in, in 2009, I kind of had to get, get a sort of a part-time job until the next thing happened, you know. So then you're kind of back to reality already at that point. And then I was kind of doing sort of casual work in 2010. Then 2011 time, when sort of Richard left the band and then it was kind of like we had to rebuild everything. The, the band is still, you know, you're still proud of it and passionate about it, but you're sort of going fuck, something's got to happen, you know, we've got to be doing something, and I don't know what it is we need to do, and you're kind of like, lost, you know, honestly, we were lost for eight, you know, for a couple of years. Six Hour Sundown stuff kind of kicked in, so that kind of gave us a sense of purpose, but again, I was still working at that time, so I couldn't be involved in everything the band were doing. I remember one day there was, they were doing like a, an acoustic what thing. What were you doing was, at the time? Where were you working? I was working at that, at that, well, that, 
the end of 2009 and end of 2010, I did like a temp, a Christmas temp job at Debenhams, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're you're getting up in the morning and and doing this normal day job, and you're thinking, especially the one in 2009, I'm thinking six months ago, seven months ago, I was supporting Iron Maiden. You know, I remember one show in Sao Paulo. The the, the final figure on it was something like 100,000 people. Now, when you're in a support band, as you know, not everyone watches a support band, but I can tell you in South America. 80% of an audience watches the support band. You know, it's like a very different thing. You, you play like in America, it's a bit different. Mm-hmm. He's, and so I, so I, out of respect to sort of say that not everyone was in there, I, I say we played to about 80,000 people as, as the support, support band. Yeah. Fast forward like nine months and I'm like stacking shelves in Debenhams. And, it, <laughs> and you know, you're thinking, you know, you made reference to it, you know, like living your wildest dreams. That, that was... In a weird way, it was a dream, but it was always, I knew I'd be doing it. Not in an arrogant way, but I just, I, there was no other option. That, that was always what was going to happen. However I got there, however it happened, whoever it was with and whatever it was doing, that's what it was going to be. I was get, doing music for my living was always what was going to happen. So when all, when all of a sudden you're working for Lauren, but then drumming with Lauren, playing these big shows, you've just recorded with Kevin Shirley, a fucking monster producer at Compass Point. You can't help feel that this is it now. Not like I've made it, but this is, I'm there, and this is now what I'm going to be doing. 2009, you know, ends, and I'm, it, that was, that was probably the start of it being really fucking difficult. And then doing other jobs, I remember, like, as I was saying, like, you know, when um, uh, Six Hour Sundance, that was 2011, I think, they, I think the guys did, like, an acoustic session for Total Rock Radio. I just couldn't be there. I had to I had to get money coming in. So I had to work that day. And at that point, I was working for my brother. My brother owns like a couple of different businesses, security businesses, that kind of thing. And he was moving into new premises. So I was doing jobs like handyman kind of stuff, which, again, not my natural skills at all. But, you know, he needed like the whole place was needed to be painted. So I was kind of getting involved with that. And then the job evolved a bit. So I was at that time very casual because I was fortunate because it was for my brother. I was working very on a very casual basis. So... He would say to me on a Friday, what days you in next week? And I'd be like, well, I've got rehearsal Monday and Tuesday, but I can do Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you know? Mm-hmm. Or it'd be like, I've got a couple of gigs next week, so I can do Monday and Tuesday, but I can't do the rest of the week. And he was cool with that, and I used to just get paid for what I could. But there were some times where I was like, well, I need to do three days' work next week, because I've got rent to pay, I've got bills to pay. I can't just have the whole week off. So, like, there'd be certain times like that. It was heartbreaking to know that the, the guys, you know, were doing this cool acoustic session, and I couldn't be there because I had to work. I, you know, it was just mm-hmm. really difficult kind of time. So when you got, when you were sort of involved with us, it was probably, I remember having a couple of conversations and you know, obviously you're, you're a very positive person, which I respect you for. And people have said to me, I'm a very positive person, but I think probably when I first met you, I was at a bit of a lower point and there were certain times where I was just a bit like negative about stuff. And you were kind of there going, man, no man, come on. You know, like you were kind of injecting that positivity, which I love about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was it was tough because it was that kind of like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my life? Because since since I've played guitar from the age of thirteen, I used to stand in my bedroom playing along with Metallica, hearing you know to live albums sometimes, hearing that roar at the end of a song, thinking, one day this is this is going to be me, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I say, when you're when you're doing the Maiden support stuff and then recording this great album, you think, well, this is now I'm now I am on that path that I was always expecting to be on. And then like, it doesn't take long before you come out the other side. And then it's that, it really, I mean, some people respond differently to it. 
I am someone that might kind of feel a bit crap about stuff normally for a short period of time, but then I will bounce back and I will make something happen. Um, but that one, because I guess being the drummer and it's not my band and, you know, Lauren's ultimately in control, but at the same time she needed someone to manage us, really, you know. And then when Steve's not going to get involved with that and then the managers you do have, that didn't work out you feel a little bit powerless. So as much as you try and turn things to positive, it's very difficult to control your destiny, I felt, in that moment. So when it came out the other side of all that band stuff, I kind of felt, you know, like I did not know what to do. I, and also, at that time, I was just about to turn 30, and that, I was struggling with the idea of turning 30 as well, because, which is weird, because now I'm 35, I don't really care about my age, but at that point, I did, because I felt like, if you haven't made it by the time you're 30, you fuck it, you, you lost the chance. You I know? think I think that's something. Uh, uh, yeah, our generation, because we are the same age, um, because of our parents. You know, by this time they were, well, uh, um, my parents for sure they were uh, married and had uh, the little Carl already, and uh, they had to basically uh, do whatever to you know put food on the table and pay the bills. And we kind of grew up with this idea that by the age of 30, we should have everything figured out. But, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, you, you just mentioned that you kind of had this uh, 3.0 crisis. <laughs> <laughs> I did have as well a little bit. Yeah, it's weird. I think, um, I think as well, what's difficult, and I guess as humans, we not all of us, but we kind of quantify things, don't we? So 30, because it's that round figure, because it's a milestone at age, you don't sort of say, oh, by the time I'm 29, I want to do this. Or by the time I'm 31, it's always like, oh, by the time I'm 30, I think I'll be like this. By the time I'm 40, this will be sorted. By the time I'm 50, you know, you kind of, it's just easier to round it up, isn't it? Or round it down. It is easier to, to round it up, exactly. And, and, and But at the end of the day, it's just, it's just a number, isn't it? It's just exactly, like and like I say, at 35 years of age, now I'm like, well, exactly, I, it's just a number, you know, and it doesn't really trouble me. But it, for some reason, I think this this 30 thing, and I, and also when you're trying, when you're looking around at, because you know, as much as bands should do their own thing and not worry about the other bands and what they're up to, you still are conscious of it. And when you're sort of like producing certain sounds, and you think, oh, it sounds quite like this band, and you look at those guys, you think, yeah, they're like 22 years of age. And I'm 30, and we're struggling to kind of make this, get this thing off the ground properly. You can't help feel that it's just like it's all a bit hopeless, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, it's a bit of a losing battle, and um, that didn't help. I think with my, as you say, 3.0 crisis. Well, but I bet you, you, well, you, you were lucky to, to have Sarah beside you, and and have a great family as well. I'm sure. And uh, but what was the what did you do then? What was your first uh, first job like after okay, uh, six hours and down playing that last show at Grasspop Festival? I think it was. Yeah. And uh, and then the band fell apart. Nothing is gonna happen. And then this is it. You know, this is it. I mean, all of that, all of the experiences, all of the touring with Iron Maiden, the snorkeling, the compass point studio recording, Kevin Shirley, blah, 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 blah. That's it. That's it. I mean, that's part of the past. We don't know. That might that might come back one day. But now, this is it. I'm back in Folkestone. What do I do? Yeah, that took a bit of a time to kind of get my head around, really, because that call from Lauren, as I say, was like August 2012. 
I was still working for my brother at the time and, and love him to bits. And that, that, that was the, uh, the plus point. I actually got to spend time with my brother and we had, we had a good laugh together. We had good fun, you know. So, but then, but then it took months really then of just kind of like working for him. And I was, I was now working for, at that point, well, I've got nothing, I can't, you know, I'm not going to not work just for the sake of it. I can't, you know, um, what I'm trying to say is once upon a time I was like, oh, I can't rehearse Monday. I'm sorry, I can't work Monday because I've got rehearsal. Now I don't have rehearsal. So now I'm working full-time. Now I'm doing Monday to Friday, you know, full-time work mm -hmm. for him. Um, I was sort of trying to, you know, he was trying to sort of set up like a bit of a marketing uh, department. So I, I was kind of now, because I was maybe a bit better on the computers than he was or some other people working for him, I started doing that, you know, for a few months. And it got into, then I turned 30, and then you're like, fuck me, I've just got to sort my life out. What am I going to do? And that was always that has been a big, it was always a big crisis, you know, if I don't do music, what am I going to do with my life, you know, uh, and that was always a big trouble for me. When I was younger, I did a degree, I've got a degree in psychology, so there was always that part of me when I was younger, even though I, I was always aiming, I was still playing in band at that point, that was when Cubic Space Division were releasing our album, you know, when I was doing my degree, um, I always had that part of me that I thought, you know what, if I'm going to do anything like that, it's going to be something that's going to be maybe more helping people or something like that, you know, or, you know, being a counsellor or that kind of thing. Um, but I wasn't ever sure. And then when I kind of was working for my brother doing something completely unrelated to that, when I turned 30, got into 2013, I was like, right, well, I need to start looking around for jobs. And a friend of mine worked for the local council uh, for a department called Lifeline. And that, that, in a nutshell, is when, like, elderly or vulnerable people have those little red buttons that they have around their neck that they press if they, you know, if they fall over or they need help or something like that. And I was... The job role that came up was literally just driving around, installing those for people. <laughs> you know, that's all it was around around Kent. You know, that's and I thought, well, really you know nice, what, man, I wasn't, I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's actually, so it's not a bad, it wasn't a bad job, you know, um, and also sort of looked at the options of things like social work, you know, being a social worker, those kind of things. And I thought, well, you know what, my friends offered me, not offered me the job, told me about this job role, think I'd be good for the job and all those kind of things. So I, I kind of thought, well, you know what, I'll go for it and see what happens. There's a bit more money than I was earning from my brother and that kind of thing. And I thought, well, also it sets me on more of a path towards perhaps that kind of job role that I thought might work for me, you know. Mm -hmm. But I did that for a couple of years and it was a nice job. Um, it's a great service for people. But then what actually happened, and again, it's like part of life as you go through life and you know, you're working things out as you go. What I found difficult about that was seeing people every day that were really ill or at the end of their lives, and, I, and that messed my head up. And I, I never would have imagined that before doing the job, but you, you, I used to kind of install like five lifelines a day. That was kind of what you did. There was five appointments a day. And um, you might go to the first person, and they've got terminal cancer, and they've been told they've got a couple of months to live. Then they... The next person might have a brain tumour and they literally could collapse at any time and die. And then the next person is 50 and they've had a stroke, exceptionally young, and their whole life's been turned upside down. And then and, th and then the next person might just be a bit elderly but just feels a bit vulnerable, so she wants a lifeline. And you do that and you feel like it's quite a rewarding job that you've set up this device for them that's going to help them. But you do that five days a week, four weeks a month, for a year, for 18 months, for two years, and seeing all these people, all I could, what started happening to me was all I could see was where I was at 31 or 32 years old, all I could see the next point was, was that, was death, you know, was mm -hmm. was illness, was vulnerability, you know, and because I'm a bit of a sensitive person, that messed my head up a lot. So 
you know, it gave me even more respect for people like doctors and nurses, that, you know, the, the carers that are seeing that stuff every day and, and, and have done it for years and years and years. So it, it gave, because really all I was doing was just seeing these people for an hour, hearing part of the story and then going, you know. So people that are working with that all day, every day, I have massive, massive respect for. But as a result, it kind of messed my head up. So then, and then it then it screwed my mind up about like, well, now what am I going to do now? Because this was always the thing. So not music. What am I going to do in my life? So then, when you do that, you think, okay, well, I can see a path here. I can see a career. You know, I work for the local council. There's other things you can do within this sort of area, this field. You know, you can sort of. I was getting put forward for management training, and you and you. I thought, do you know what? Well, maybe this is this is it. And then when you start getting disillusioned with that, you're like, oh my god, now what? Now now what? Come on, man. What am I going to do now? Why can't I ever just settle down with a job and fucking get on with it like everyone else seems to, you know? So then that's when I went to LA because I was like, do you know what? I need to kind of, there's only one thing I've ever wanted to do is music. <laughs> so I've got to, I've got, I've got to get back to that. And like, I'd always heard, you know, like, if you, wanna, you know, if you get to LA, that's the place to make it happen. Um, and I went to LA, and that messed my head up as well because I was like, "Do I even want this? <laughs> you know what's going on?" <laughs> you know, it, it was a really like really quite honestly, you know, I get on with life, and I have a good time nonetheless. I keep things positive for the most part, but when you when you sort of sit down to it and think, "What's going on with myself?" That's when I sometimes overthink things, and um, it can get a bit messy. But w- what was a great thing at that point was that um, even though I went to LA to look for stuff, um, and as we found out, the scene out there was, although we mentioned earlier, it was cool. To go out there as a musician, you've just got to live. You you've got to have lived there from when you were young, I think. You know, mm-hmm. like if I if I'd have lived there, how I am and how I was at, when I was twenty, I can't help feel that I would probably be at the top of my game in a massive band now. I absolutely <laughs> you know? agree. I absolutely agree. I, I I can't help but think the same for me. You know, I yeah. I, I always wondered uh, if if that was the case. Absolutely, we we would be making a living out of music somehow. You know what yeah, I mean? absolutely. And I just think that you know, I, I was, I've been fortunate enough that I am by far, I'm not the best guitarist in the world. I'm not the best drummer in the world. But I think what I deliver in a band is the right thing for the band I'm in. And um, I think I'm a nice enough person to be around. I get on very well with lots of people, or almost everybody I, I meet. So I think, like you know, like we just said, if we if we're there from a young age. So when I came back from LA and I was just all like confused because I obviously um, got away and you know. Um, my wife was here. Obviously, no, no problem with our relationship. But I've left her here by herself, not long after us getting married, so I can go and pursue this thing in my thirties to try and do something that really I should. If I was going to do it, I should have done when I was twenty. Um, all felt like a confusing. My head was just all over the place, you know. Um, luckily, she supported me the whole way through, and it actually helped um, strengthen even more our marriage, really, because she was there for me that whole time. And like most people, just fucking freaked out. You know, I'm going to quit my job and go to LA. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> it's not what people want to hear one year after getting married, is it? You know, um, so I respect her massively that she was cool about that. But um, yeah, it was just a, it was just a weird, confusing time. Um, but I remember coming back and I, and someone said, "What's it like in LA for the music thing?" I said, "You know what? If if an 18, and 19, 20 year old came up to me and said, oh, Ollie, I'm thinking about going out to LA,' you know, you've come back. You didn't seem to kind of get anything from it." would you recommend I go? I'd be like, you 100% should go right now. You shouldn't even talk about it anymore. Book your tickets and go without thinking about it anymore, you know? 100%. Because if you're there from a younger age and you just just go out there and accept the fact you're going to have to go and get a shit job and play in covers bands maybe for a few weeks, for, for a few months, maybe for a year. But 
just by being there, being a man on the ground in that city, I just cannot see how if you're not if you're a decent solid musician and a decent solid guy, how you can't make it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think the age I went out, I mean I can't even think what that would have been. Maybe I was thirty four, maybe when I went out. Fuck me, if I'd have gone out when I was twenty, fourteen years of working like I had been here in that place. I, as I say, I would have been shocked had I not been earning, like you say, somehow, some way, a living from music. You know. Yes, absolutely. I I I, I agree one hundred percent. I I always think that uh, when I moved to London uh, ten years ago, if I had moved to LA with all the drive and and all the enthusiasm and 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 everything that I brought with me ten years ago, uh, things could have could have been different. But then that's a bit of a waste of time as well, isn't it? To just waste of energy you know waste of time waste of energy to keep <laughs> uh, uh pondering about things that oh it could have happened what would have been what would have happened if i yeah. have had done this or that you know you know it's, it, it's yeah the point is you didn't and you've had a great ride ever since isn't it that's that's really the focus i didn't move there when i was 19 but i've had a great life ever since and i got to do that that stuff with iron maiden you know exactly. uh, if i'd have gone to la i wouldn't have done it okay it could have been something as cool as not quite as cool as but I'm not. I'm not complaining about the experiences I did get. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, well, because so at the end of the day, that's that's what life is all about, isn't it? There's no there's no guarantees. The only guarantee is that one day we won't be here anymore. Yeah. And uh, one day you're at the top, and one day uh, and and being a, at the top, what, what what does it mean? You know, I mean, you, some people will say that. Uh, why you where you lived at the time you know touring the world that was uh, uh being at the top you know but i'm pretty sure that you are at the top right now you you you, you know you've got a job you're you're married to someone that is extremely supportive to yourself you guys just bought a house and do you know what i mean like for some people even for myself that sounds like a a very far away dream you know <laughs> being married to someone amazing and uh buying my first house so it it, it, it it's all about perspective isn't it absolutely and, and i do feel and i and i you know not in an um an arrogant way or anything but i i am very fortunate to be in the position i'm in do you know what i mean and i and i am grateful for it every day you know um and i'm grateful for every part of the experience i've had uh, I re- like I say, when I probably first met you, I was not as grateful every day. I was kind of, I was, pi- you know, I was pissed off. You know, I was like kind of, I felt um, life wasn't fair. Was it was a, you know, and I'm not that kind of person. I wasn't that kind of person before. I haven't been that person since. But at that point, I was really, life isn't fair. But like you say, it's all about perspective because life was fucking fair. I'd had, I've just had the most incredible couple of years. You know, mm-hmm. that people would have given anything to have. You know, absolutely. And you get, and you get, you can get very like the dark cloud over you can sometimes shadow everything else can't it and um but yeah overall absolutely very grateful and you know i can't complain about anything you know and also i play in a great band now wicked stone and we we get a, like a great deal of attention and love and we do some great gigs and i'm very fortunate that really i've got a good balance um which is which is the next challenge in life really a balancing out how you manage everything in life <laughs> without yeah and i think and i think that's it, you know? and i think that's that, that that's a, a very good thing as well you you keep playing in a band you've got a band and uh, and you never know tomorrow you never know tomorrow what can happen tomorrow it's just uh, you can't rule things out you know that's right you got to you got to keep your mind open to anything haven't you and and where i was 
2012, I just all I could see the future was just dull and, and, and not what I wanted to be. And, I, and, I, and as I say, I felt pissed off. Not, you know, and I, I'm ashamed to to have felt that way. You know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that, but you know, that's how I was for a time. Um, but what was amazing was that in 2000 and what year was it? 2016. So we. Was it 16? Yeah, 2016. Wicked Stone got asked to play at Rambling Man Festival. So we were on the unsigned stage, right? So I've, I've been to LA, I've come back, I've then got another job, which I do now, which I really, a job that I, for the first time in my life, I really enjoy. I'm a kitchen designer. No, no idea that I'd ever be doing that in my life, you know? You're a kitchen designer? That's, that's my job, I'm a kitchen designer. <laughs> so, how? Yeah. Did that happen? Uh, That's amazing. Friend, I know, but a friend, it, 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 it sounds right. How, how does that happen? It, when, when I tell you, it's just very simple. A really great friend of mine, you know, one of my best buds from years gone by, kind of thing. You know, I've known him since I was at school. His family run a kitchen business, an independent kitchen business, selling really lovely German kitchens. And he said, "We're looking for a kitchen designer, and we want to train someone who knows nothing about it, because we don't want someone that's been trained from another company that then we have to undo the work." to then retrain them to how we want them to be. We want someone who's completely fresh. And it's just funny how life works out, isn't it? Because you're like, okay, well, I, I can say yes, I can do the job, and I know fuck all about it. <laughs> you know, and, and that, it's not, it's not often you can say that that's the best qualification, that you know nothing about the job. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so then I did that, and um, as I say, like, I'm two years down the line of that already, and, I'm, and uh, like other jobs where I've got 18 months down the line or two years, and you start going, oh, man, I can't do this forever. What we're going to do now? I don't feel that way. So I'm very grateful that I don't feel that way. Oh, that's that's I enjoy really it. Good. That's yeah, good. it's really cool. And then, so that was two, that was March 2016. But then a couple of years, couple of months later, you know, I'm playing in Wicked Stone. We're doing, you know, we've recorded some stuff with um, my my bro Oz Craggs in Folkestone, who's got a studio, Hidden Track Studios, and that's an incredible place. And uh, then you release stuff, and then, then you're playing Rambling Man, and okay, we're first on on the Sunday on the unsigned thing, so I, I kind of go into that. No, I, with my experience, I know what support slots or festivals can be like. You can play to thousands, or you can play to like 10 people, you know, and, and the build-up to it can be, you, you think, oh, we're playing at this festival, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and then you, you, you play to 10 people, and it's a bit like, ah, it can be a bit like disheartening. But we played, we were first band on, and what was amazing was that the unsigned stage at, uh, in that year, I don't know, I presume it's still the same, was right by the main entrance. So when people were coming in, they would stop and watch, and they liked what they saw, so the crowd, over the next 40, 30, 40 minutes we played, gathered and gathered and gathered, and we had this amazing gig, and we we picked up a bunch of fans from that gig that, that are still you know, with us now, obviously came to our album release in October and all that kind of thing, and we've gathered the fans since. But my point being is that I'm, st- I'm standing there, and I, I thought about it during the gig as I'm playing. I'd never would have imagined this happening again. You know, in 2012, when everything mm-hmm. came to an end, I thought, well, you know, I'll do the covers band. And that was, as I say, like you feel like a millionaire. You, you turn up, you, you might get 40 or 50 quid pocket money, you know? Yeah. And you feel good for it. And you have a gig, and you have a good time, and you, you, you play music, and it's enjoyable. But then all of a sudden, you're, you're an original, you know, you're doing your own music and you're playing this this kind of festival. And you think, fuck me, man, five years ago when I was feeling low, I never imagined it. And here you are, and it still can happen. So it's coming kind of coming back to what you just said. You never know what tomorrow brings, you know. And that's really I amazing. I think it's 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 seriously something. Um, it, it's just amazing because you, you gosh, wow, you, you managed to kind of like uh, get 
put everything together somehow again you've got a band that you're proud of they play with friends which is great good music well produced and you you, you get to play festivals again you know like you did at Ramblin um, and 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 life is just uh, you know uh, um, it's just I would say somehow perfect in many ways right obviously that that's an utopia nothing is ever entirely perfect we always we always strive for more we always want more we always look at things like oh this could be better but yeah that's that's just life that's just life yeah and i think there's there's two ways of looking at that as well because you can look at that as a as a negative thing in that you're never happy because you always want something else which is the negative way of looking at it or the positive way is everything is perfect why not make it more perfect? Why not make it even better? Why not add something else to the to the mix that makes you even happier? And that's not a bad thing. And I think really as humans, we we we've got that in us, haven't we? That we strive for more. We need we need that to keep us going. If you sit there and coast and settle, that's when things get difficult because Absolutely. that's when you're accepting of things that might not always be ideal, rather than aiming for something better or or, or aiming to perfect something. Even if it's things like you know people. You know, exercise. You know, like you and you're running. You know, you didn't always go running. Yeah. And now right. you do, and now it's a massive part of your life. You know, mm -hmm. and it doesn't put you on stage in front of thousands of people, but that, that's irrelevant, isn't it? It's just it's adding another bow to your and another element to your life that you now love. You've met amazing people from it. You've gained great experiences. You've seen other places in the world. You know, by going to do different marathons in different countries. Absolutely. It, and you never would have thought, you know, when there's times maybe you were frustrated in different bands that you would get such a great um, boost to your life by running. Exactly. You know, you just would never have occurred to you, you know. 100%, my friend. Wow, Oli, uh, this this has been amazing, man. Um, this is super, like, it's, it's great, great content. I think uh, you sharing your story so many people can relate to it in many different levels you know i certainly can relate obviously uh because of uh, so many things in common that we share like music and, and 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 passions and and beliefs and and well hence why we are we're friends we're still friends after all and uh i i, I loved it i loved it i really want to uh just uh now get to try and uh get to wrap up this conversation in 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 good spirits so i'm gonna have some roller coaster questions for you my friend <laughs> <laughs> here they come <laughs> are they, do these Man. vary between people or are they uh same no, no. The, the roller coaster questions are basically uh, same. Qu I, I do those questions to 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 all my guests, all of them. All of them get to answer them somehow. So, um, so yeah. But but seriously, this uh, I I can tell that man. I I really really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure we could stay here for another hour with you sharing experiences and 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 and, and talking. And I'm sure this is not going to be. Uh, you're definitely gonna be again on on the podcast. I'm I'm really positive, and hopefully we're gonna do it a live one, like face to face, sharing a beer. Here yeah, man, it. absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. It's been a, it's been a while. Cool. Let me let's go for the first one then. Uh, do you have or follow any morning routines, rituals? 
yeah, um, rushing around trying to get out <laughs> 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 quicker than I should be, you know, um, quicker than I knew. Uh, no, I've got to be honest, I'm not very, I'm not a very good morning person. My, um, I, I sort of, I kind of gather speed and momentum as the day goes on, really. So, um, I'm probably better in the morning than I used to be, but quite honestly, I, I, I allow myself just enough time to get up, shower, eat breakfast, get dressed, brush my teeth, and leave. And what, you normally, what do you normally have for breakfast? Do you what have... I normally have for breakfast? It's a mixture of, um, you know, like, you know, as humans, we kind of get into our little routines, don't we? So um, I work Monday to Friday all day and Saturday, mor Saturday mornings, but I get every other Wednesday off to make up the Saturday mornings. So... Monday to Friday, I have a mixture, depending on how I feel, of either Weetabix or Special K. <laughs> <laughs> and on Saturday mornings, as a little treat, I have uh, a crunchy nut cornflakes. Oh, wow. And every other Wednesday off, I also have um, crunchy nut cornflakes as, as the treat. <laughs> Ah oh, man, I love this. This is great. <laughs> with with what did you have with milk? Yeah, just uh, semi semi skim milk. Oh. Washed down, washed down with a bit of pineapple juice. <laughs> oh, man, amazing. <laughs> and what how, what what do you normally eat for lunch? Uh, do you eat do you take take home? Do you like have pack 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 lunch from home or? No, I, I, the the place I work is really close to Sainsbury's, so I go, I go and get like rolls, and I either have ham and tomato or chicken and tomato, or um, sometimes, again, if I'm sort of feeling particularly hungry, I go and get those uh, quite unhealthy, I suppose, um, sandwich filler things. You can get coronation chicken ones and egg and bacon ones, <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of chuck a load of that crap into a couple of rolls, and uh, and then. <laughs> And then, um, and then feel guilty, so I always finish that up with an apple to try and make me feel like I've done something. <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm that's happy great. with my day. <laughs> uh, bro, what's your spiritual practice, if any at all? Well, I'm an atheist, so I have no beliefs uh, of any God or anything like that. My belief is, though, that there is some energy um, that works in the universe i just don't understand how it does but i think it's the kind of thing where um if it's on a vibrational level or something like that that if you're throwing out the positive thoughts they're going to come back to you or if you're um you know like the, when you aim for something that you can align everything you're doing your thoughts and feelings you will kind of get there you know it mm -hmm. depends if you're going to block that with any negativity but um, I did try, and um, again, this is a bit like coming back a minute ago when I said about, you know, that you add other things to your life. So it's not a bad thing. It's not that you're unhappy, but you just kind of want to better yourself for that kind of thing. I did go for a short period of time, that only only very short, where I was trying to get into mindfulness. Um, but you know what? Life just, this is my, it's an excuse, but life gets in the way. I'm, I'm busy because I've played in those three different bands, and I have rehearsals, obviously, with those bands, and Obviously, I'm married and I work and I'm busy with work and all those kind of things. But there is no excuse to not do mindfulness, by the way. And, oh, man, uh, I'll tell you something. You know, I, uh, I've been delaying myself into that as well. For uh, Well, I delayed myself, I should say, uh, into mindfulness, into meditation for, for a long while. But since I'm super happy to say that since last uh, October, 
I've been meditating religiously every single morning. Obviously that, yeah. you know, uh, during the last several months, I might have missed a Saturday or a Sunday or one day here and there. But as a general rule, that's one of the very first things I do in the morning. I've been meditating anything between 10 and 20 minutes. And it's, I think people do get frustrated because people expect something to come out of it. Oh, something's going to happen. I'm going to see something. I'm going to feel something. Something's going to change drastically in my life because now I am this uh, yogi type of uh, person. But uh, I think the benefits are like super um, somehow well hidden. But you start to be a bit more... You just basically rewi rewire your brain in many ways. You observe your thoughts, you know. Sometimes you just... I, I personally uh, uh, get myself, like, thinking about wasting energy, wasting my brain with thoughts sometimes that just going in on loops, you know. We, we all do. And when you start observing that, when you start to kind of, like, breaking that uh, uh, that pathway, you... I don't know. There's a there's an evolution to to it. You know, you you do evolve from it. You do become, uh, uh, I think, a more conscious person somehow. And Ooh. it's a, I think it's a lifelong uh, journey. It's nothing that you will do. Okay, I've been practicing this for a year. Now I'm at this stage kind of no, situation. No, no, sure. Know? It's not. It's not necessarily very measurable, is it? It's not measurable. The way the way when you're running, for example, if you run ten k and you yeah. run it quicker the next time, you know you've achieved something, don't you? You know. Exactly. Um, <coughs> the thing is, when I when I tried to get into it, it wasn't like I tried but failed. I tried and, and enjoyed it, and I really liked the feeling of it. But it's just it became one of those things where. You do it today, you do it tomorrow, you don't do it the next day because you, your day is just chaos. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you can be out of the habit of doing it. And then a week goes by, you go, oh, I must do that again. But it's it's obviously, it's a discipline, it's a discipline which you've yeah. obviously done to actually make yourself do it. And, and the joke of it is, you know, I, the things I've read, and obviously you're going to know a lot more about it than me because you're, you're actually doing it regularly. So sometimes you don't have to do like an hour or 30 minutes sometimes you can just do three minutes of, of mindfulness exactly you know? and that's it and, and you've achieved something for the day that you had you by not doing it you haven't achieved you know i never do any any longer than 20 minutes sometimes no, exactly. it's 10 minutes sometimes more, very very often it's 15 minutes sometimes it's 16 sometimes it's 17 sometimes it's 20 you know as long as you sit down quietly and just pay attention on your breathing. Try to kind of like create a gap between one thought and the next and observe your mind. Uh, whatever it takes, you know, like if, if we can spare five minutes, great. But that's that's the thing, you know, you, 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 you got to create that time, you know. If you, if, if, even if on your case it's going to be quite difficult, but even if it's meant uh, to wake up five or ten minutes earlier, you know, get out of the bed ten uh, minutes earlier in order to create that space. Because that's exactly what I did, you know. I started to, okay, the only way to get this done uh, is uh, getting myself out of bed, uh, whatever, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes uh, earlier than the usual. And at first, it's a bit like, oh, man, no, I can't do that. You know, I can't spare 20 minutes of my sleep to do. But then, you know, it just becomes part of your life, basically, you know. And then you get used to it instead of waking up at uh, 7 o'clock, get up at quarter to 7. And, and, and after a few weeks, it just becomes the norm. And, uh, yeah, it, it is really good. I totally uh, support that. And uh, I definitely think it would be uh, a great addition for your for your daily 
daily daily morning routines, I would say. Absolutely, and as I say, I, even though I sound busy, I can't. It's not. I'm not, I'm not too busy to do it because I still find time to do fucking bullshit stuff <laughs> like look on Facebook for yeah. too long every single day and looking at nonsense that people are posting that I don't really need to do, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and that's the frustrating thing, and I and I and I'm, I get into. You know, again, like lots of us do, you get into this silly cycle of doing shit like that on your phone, flicking through. Oh, absolutely, it. yeah. That's one of the things that I I changed. I I mean, I I realized how how much I was spending, how much time I was spending, checking and scrolling things on Instagram and Facebook and and all that uh, social media, which I still do, but uh, I I changed and I create a few rules, personal rules for myself. So, for for example, in the morning before my alarm, I use my iPhone alarm, so my alarm would go off. And then I would grab my phone and I would open my eyes and I would start checking the social media, you know. And then I would spend 20, 25 minutes sometimes, you know, checking social media in bed, you know. And then before before I knew, I was already, my brain was wired up. My thoughts were like everywhere. And uh, that's basically how I started the day. And that's how a lot of people actually start their days. Um, and And then I basically stopped doing that. So nowadays I get out of bed. My alarm goes off. My phone is on uh, airplane mode. Um, Wi-Fi is off. I get off bed, and then I go do my thing in the toilet, breakfast, meditation. And then just after all that, that's when I get my phone. That's when I, you know, take out of airplane mode, check everything I have to check, and then I sit down the phone and try to not look at it. I have notifications off. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes you're, like, uh, a bit anxious to, you know, uh, uh, know what what's happening on people's lives, you know, like family and stuff. You know, I have a WhatsApp group with my family members, so uh, people keep messaging me there. And uh, but more more often, more often than than I than than used to be at least, I I see myself not touching the phone as much as uh, uh, I did before. And then at night, same procedure. You know, when I leave work, because I normally leave work around 10 p.m. Uh, I try not to look at my phone because at the end of the day, there's nothing. Uh, uh, well, I, I know myself that I'm, I, I'm not expecting anything urgent and there's no emergencies that I will have to actually have access to my phone. And if I have to, then someone, a person will call me or text me. So uh, I don't open my WhatsApp and I don't check Facebook and I try and not do that. And it's really good, man. It does, it does a lot of good to your to your sanity i would say um right this is a tricky one what would someone who doesn't like you and i can't imagine that but who doesn't like you say about you brother <laughs> that's a good one you know, that's a good question crikey mm. um <laughs> oh, you stumped me for the first time on this conversation <laughs> what would they not like about me yeah um yeah do you know what um okay I think that sometimes I think I'm polite when I speak my mind, but sometimes people don't like to hear when you speak your mind, you know? Mm -hmm. So if I believe in something, I'll stand up and I will be diplomatic about it and say, listen, I don't think this is fair or right. If you go against people like that, sometimes some people can be like, man, I totally agree with you. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad I now think of things that way. Other people are a little bit more strong-headed, and they don't like 
their thought process or way of thinking to be fucked with. And I think that might be, there's, there's probably a couple of people um, from the past that maybe have, have uh, maybe would have a disliking for me for that. And it makes it sound like I'm the kind of guy that goes around, alright, you know, I go and tell people the truth whether they like it or not. I'm not that kind of person because I think it's rude when people are like that. But if it's if it's like a, a debate about something that you're talking about, whether as I say, generally music or something like that, um, you know, when I say music, I'm just talking about when you're in a band or your creative conversations, shall we say. Mm-hmm. I think that might be the only thing that people would have trouble with. Um, yeah, where, uh, where you kind of someone's strong-headed and, and they've got like their this is where it's going to be, and I'm like, well, I don't think that's going to be the best way to do it because if you do that, then this is blah blah blah, and I think that would. You know, as I say, it's people's way of uh, thinking, you know. I get ya. Uh, what kind you. of food do you go for when in need of a treat? What do you like? Uh, obviously, uh, with Sarah, you probably share uh, with her, you know what, let's go. Let's let's be cheeky tonight. Let's have, I don't know, pizza, burgers, uh, mac and cheese, whatever. What, what would be the treat for you okay i'm gonna treat myself i know that you treat yourself now on wednesdays and saturdays <laughs> during breakfast <laughs> but let's go a little bit crazier here <laughs> uh i reckon well chinese I'm, I'm a bit of a sucker for chinese takeaway um uh, but you know what i was thinking this the other day and i and i and i mentioned this from time to time you can never go wrong with pizza uh, there's something about pizza, just that sheer quantity of melted cheese over bread with <laughs> lovely toppings on. I just, I'm a sucker for it. So, like, I think I, I, I used the line the other day, even bad pizza is better than no pizza. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I agree. So, so I think uh. I probably would have to say that pizza is probably the, the, the very base level go-to treat, you know, that will always keep me happy. Yes, absolutely. I agree 100%. <laughs> Right, and uh, one more. What are you reading at the moment, if anything at all? Or what books have you gifted most? Um, the kind of books I read more of more recent times are not so much fiction books or anything like that. They'll be kind of almost like, uh, you know, self-improvement kind of books, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I always, and I've read a couple recently by a, a guy called Brian Tracy. I don't know if you've heard of that guy no i haven't you should look him up man he's, he's you, you'd appreciate that brian that guy i think Say it again. Brian, Tra- brian, brian tracy yeah okay and he's just got like you know a, my favorite book by him is a book called goals so it's literally just about the motivate the motivation you have to go for what you need to go for you know and it's not just one of those kind of books of like go for you know live your dreams and you know everything's going to be all good it's just very um clear way of like when you get up today what are you doing towards your biggest goal what are you doing every single day that drives you closer to achieving the things you need to achieve you know yeah and it, and it is very good at uh, breaking it down and very good at kind of giving ways of uh setting your targets and and those kind of things so i would recommend that so that's that's my recent reading amazing you know. i'll have a look into brian tracy then my friend. yeah man i can i can thoroughly recommend Oli, brother, thank you so very much for this conversation, man. Uh, very, Thanks very, for having me, bro. Very, very nice. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm, r- I'm very positive that a lot of people will relate to your 
life story which is just starting because as we were saying earlier on we are 35 years old and i'm sure we're gonna live way longer we're gonna double that at the very least and lots of lots of other things lots of other great things uh, uh will come your way i'm absolutely sure of that and, and i too, truly hope to see you sometime soon whenever you come to london please uh, let me know and uh we shall do this again at some point yeah can't wait man good stuff can't wait to see you cheers thanks ali i hope you guys enjoyed this conversation this podcast as much as i did doing it so if that's the case please do follow on instagram at rollercoaster carl myself at carl casagrande on twitter same thing facebook same thing uh do subscribe do subscribe on itunes subscribe on spotify that's very very much appreciated thank you and have a great great day cheers bye bye